0: Morning journey? You ever notice how the most important things oftentimes are said or done or they happen towards the end of something? Uh, If you're a sports fan, you notice that the majority of timeouts get called in the fourth quarter of a game, right, because that's when the most important things are often talked about. I've had some of the best conversations with people that are close to me in the in the weeks the days before we moved to go live somewhere else because we were nearing the end i've had experiences over 25 years of ministry of sitting bedside with people in their last moments on this earth and some of the most beautiful some of the most impactful some of the most important things are said and done in those last moments Uh, At CSF, the campus ministry that I work for, we actually see the majority of decisions for Jesus. The majority of baptisms happen in April in our campus ministries at the end of a semester. Oftentimes the most important things are said or done or they happen towards the end. This morning, we're wrapping up our sermon series as we've walked through these three chapters in the Gospel of John that give us this picture of Jesus and his heart. And this morning specifically, we're going to be in John chapter 17. We're going to start in verse 6. We're going to jump around a little bit, but we're going to finish this, this what most people call the high priestly prayer, this prayer of Jesus. And this prayer in John 17 from Jesus contains his final words to his disciples in the upper room. After this prayer, all that's left for Jesus is the Garden of Gethsemane where he cries out to God to take this cup from him, and then the cross and eventually the empty tomb. So Jesus, I believe, in these last moments as he prays to God is making sure that he asks God for what matters most to him. In in this text today, we're going to see Jesus pray what matters. In these final verses of chapter 17, as we finish this prayer from Jesus to God the Father for his followers, it shows us the heart of the Savior. It shows us the priorities of Jesus the King for his people. It shows us what Jesus wants most for you and me. So we're going to start in verse 6. We're going to read just 6 through 10. Jesus is praying to God the Father. Don't forget that this morning. And as he prays, he says to God, he says, God, I have manifested your name. I have made you known to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them. And they have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. So now I'm praying for them, Jesus says. I'm praying for for them that they will, I am praying for the world. I am not praying for the world. Good Lord. Um, I speak for a living. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world but for those whom you have given me for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. Jesus shows us in this first four verses, as he says these things to his disciples, he says, I have manifested your name, God, to your people. And, and that word manifested, and the NIV actually probably gives a little better translation, and they translate it revealed. And that's what that word really means. Jesus is saying, I have revealed you, God, the Father, to your people. I have revealed or I have shown God to them. And Jesus shows that the, the first priority as he prays to God for his people is that God would get the glory. Jesus says, my whole life has been about revealing you, God the Father, to those who follow me. And now Jesus says, I'm praying to you, God, that you would pass that on to those who will come after Jesus is asking God that his followers will continue to reveal the glory of God, to manifest God on earth just as Jesus has done. Jesus is now praying to God and he's revealing to us that he's passing on this truth. He's passing on this command. He's saying, God, as you have revealed yourself through me to these people, now continue to reveal yourself through these people to other people. He's asking that God would continue to glorify himself through the disciples. And you and I this morning as we read this, we understand that as followers of Jesus, his name is on us. That's why we call ourselves Christians, Christians. We're in Christ. We carry the name of Jesus through everything we do, everywhere we go, with everything we say. And the first priority that we see as Jesus prays for those of us who will follow him is that we point people to God. That God gets the glory in everything we do, that we would carry the name of Jesus with us. And and let me tell you this morning, this priority from Jesus is the umbrella under which the other three priorities will sit. The other three things that we'll look at in this prayer this morning all sit under the umbrella that everything points people to God and gives God the glory. Well, Jesus goes on in John 17. We're actually going to jump over to verse 13. And in verse 13, Jesus says, But now, but now I'm coming to you. And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, God, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask you, God, that you take them out of the world, but I do ask that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And then skipping over to verse 19, he says, For their sake I consecrate myself that they may be sanctified in truth. In the heart of Jesus' prayer is this request to God that his followers would be sanctified. Jesus asks God that now that he's leaving, God, please sanctify, set apart your people. And and sanctification is a big church word that we use, a big biblical word, and it really just means that, it just means to be set apart. Sanctification means something that's set aside, something that's separated for a special use. And if you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, that's who you and I are supposed to be. We're supposed to be set apart for a special use, a special mission. What what Jesus is talking about here is he's praying that God will continue to help his people understand what it means to live for God. Now don't confuse these two terms this morning. There's another big term we use called justification. And Jesus isn't praying for that because justification automatically happens when you and I surrender our life to Jesus. Only Jesus can make us right with God. That's justification. But once we are made right with God, Jesus is praying. His heart longing is for those who have been made right with God to continue to grow, to live like God. And that's been God's heart since creation— In Leviticus chapter 20, God was talking about his people, and he said, you shall be holy, set apart to me. For I, the Lord, am holy, set apart, and I have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. What Jesus is praying for is that you and I would be different than those who don't know him. And and I think he prays this because he understands that this is the crux of living on mission for God. So, so, how do we do that? How do we continue to allow God to sanctify us? Well, Jesus prays for it right in this passage. Jesus says to sanctify them by the word of God. It is scripture that changes us. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul said, All scripture, everything in scripture, is breathed out by God, it's profitable for teaching. For reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Jesus says that the word of God is what will change, transform, and set us apart. Bible scholar D.L. Moody once said that this book, the Bible, will keep you from sin. Or, sin will keep you from this book. See, when, when you and I were saved, we were set apart by God. And as we grow in our faith, we're more and more being sanctified to look like God. This is that whole thing where we talk about all the time. Jesus literally prays for this, for us to be in the world, but not of the world. See, Jesus is asking God. He didn't. He specifically didn't ask God to take us away. Jesus didn't say, he specifically prayed, God, don't take them out of the world. I'm not praying for that. I'm not asking you to remove them from the world. He says, I'm asking you to keep them from evil while they live in the world. And I don't know about you, but I I followed Jesus for 25 years of my life, and this is the hardest thing I think to do. I have wrestled for 25 years and continue to wrestle with this line of what does it mean to live in the world but not be of the world? How do I follow Jesus in such a way that I am different than those who don't, but how do I do it in such a way that it draws people to him? How do I live in such a way that people want to know more about Jesus, but also know that Jesus has changed my life? And throughout history, we've really seen that most followers of Jesus take one of three approaches to this. One is good and two are not. And we've seen throughout history that some Christians will say, well, I'm just going to do isolation. I wanna, I'm so concerned about remaining faithful to God and his word that I will completely disengage from all people who don't know Jesus. And, and the extreme version of this is I'm going to move out in the wilderness off the grid and nobody will see me, Right? I'm going to walk through the desert with a hood and look like a Jedi and follow Jesus and not be around people who don't know him. And we think if I can just separate myself from the world, if the only thing I do is church things and church events and church-sponsored things, and those things are all good, but that's all I'm going to do. I'm only going to be around church people. Then I'll live for Jesus. And that all sounds really good until we realize that part of living for Jesus, which we'll talk about in a minute, is drawing other people to Jesus who don't know him. Well, then there's an opposite group, and we'll call that group the inoculation group. (laughs) They believe that once I get saved and once I give my life to Jesus, that I'm just completely immune to temptation and sin, that I don't need to worry about how I live. I can just live with everybody, not worry about temptation, because I'm a Christian now, so I'll never be tempted again. (laughs) And I can just do whatever the world does because grace will cover it and we'll all be fine. It's, it's that group that Paul talked about where they said, well, since grace is so great, shouldn't we just sin all the more? Well, see, the problem with that is, is then how do people know that there's something different in Jesus? And I don't know about you, but, but I've, I've wrestled with and probably lived in both those camps at different points in my life. And, and I'm tempted by both of those camps in my current life. Like there are moments when I look at the world and what goes on and the division and the hatred where I I say this to my wife all the time. I'm like, you know what, why don't we just buy a cabin out in the middle of the woods and make sure it has cable TV so I can watch sports. (laughs) And we're just gonna live off the grid and not be around people. And then my wife says, Justin, you're not built to live off the grid. (laughs) I'm like, yeah, you're right. We'd all die. Let's find one person we like who is built to live off the grid and he can come with us, right? And then there are moments in my life where I just want to go to God and say, you know what, God, living different is hard. Can I just, can I just treat people like people who don't know you treat them? Can I just say things that are probably dumb and maybe a little hateful, but I just, I'd just rather say this than, than love them? Well, Jesus prays for us to be a third kind of group. We're going to call this insulation. Jesus prays for us to be insulated, to be in the world, but maybe insulated from the world. And this is a group that believes that a daily focus on Jesus will help protect us from temptation and sin. As we seek to do all things to show and share the gospel with people who don't know Jesus, this group will work diligently to balance a life of faithfulness to the word of God and also faithfulness to the mission to bring Jesus to the world. This group seeks to live differently in the midst of an unbelieving world and bear fruit for Jesus. This group seeks to love differently in the midst of an unlovable world and bear fruit for Jesus. This group seeks to talk and to speak words of encouragement and life differently than a world that doesn't. This group seeks to understand and show grace to a world that doesn't understand it. This group doesn't beat somebody over the head with Scripture, but they simply live and talk and love and serve differently than people who don't know Jesus. And they do it because they do know Jesus. They live and they do many of the same exact things that everybody else does, but they do it with a different purpose and a different perspective that draws people in. In church, can I tell you this morning, I think the reason Jesus prays this is because that is what will win the world to Jesus. That group that says, I'm with you, but I want you to know that I'm also with Jesus. You know why I know that that's what wins the world? Because that's what won me. I grew up thinking that being a Christian meant you never screwed up and that you never had fun, to be honest. (laughs) And then I met this group of guys when I was in college who honestly were a lot like me and yet very different than me. (laughs) Like we did all the same things, but they did it for a different reason. It was kind of weird, but not weird enough where I went, I don't want to be you. And they had a purpose in the things they did that I didn't. And they liked church, which seemed really odd to me. (laughs) And they talked about Scripture, and they actually read the Bible. And yet they still had fun, and they played basketball, and they did all these things with me, and they loved me just as I was. And yet they lived in a way that I began to ask questions, and they answered those questions in love and grace, and they did it differently than anybody I'd been around. They lived in the world with me, but boy, I could tell they weren't of the world like me. And it made me want what they had. And Jesus longs for that in his people. He goes on, we jump back to verse 11. And Jesus says, I am no longer in the world, but they are. They are in the world, and I am coming to you, Father. So keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And then you jump over to verse 20, and Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for all of those who will believe in me throughout their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world will believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you have loved me. I don't know if you caught this this morning, but in five verses, seventy five percent of the verse is one word, right? <laughs> Jesus over and over and over again says one, one, that they may be one just like we are one so they can be one just like I am one and you're one and we're all one. He says it over and over again because Jesus longs and he prays in the last moments of his life for the unity of his church. Jesus asks that we as Christians, that God would give us the ability as followers of Jesus to be united because of our relationship in Jesus. And Jesus is praying for unity, not uniformity. In fact, Scripture goes to great lengths to talk about how we're all created differently. We have different gifts and different abilities and different personalities. But here's the key. We have one Savior and one King, and his name is Jesus. And Jesus says that unity, the ability to work and serve and live together under the umbrella of Jesus, is what should define the church. And that shouldn't surprise us, especially in the Gospel of John. Because over and over and over again, Jesus teaches. And he asks for, and he commands all these things about loving each other. In John 13, Jesus said, By this, all people will know that you're my disciples, that you're followers of Jesus, if you love one another. In John 14, Jesus said, If you love me you'll keep my commandments. In John 17 now, Jesus says that him and the Father are one and they're in each other. And he says, I pray that they also, us, that, we may, be, that they may, we may be in God and in Christ so that the world will believe that he has sent us. Three times in the Gospel of John, in John 13, Jesus tells us that the way we love each other, The way you and I as followers of Jesus love and show love to each other will show the world that we are followers of Jesus. How we love each other is what shows the world that we follow Jesus. In John 14, Jesus tells us that how we love God is what will fuel our obedience and it will show the world that we live for Jesus. And now in John 17, Jesus says that our unity in the church, our ability to work and live together for Jesus and his mission will show the world that we're sent by Jesus. Isn't it incredible (laughs) that three times Jesus says the way the world will know that we follow him, the way the world will know that we live for him, and the way the world will know that we're sent by him, is how we love each other and how we get along and how in the midst of an incredibly different and diverse church that we work together. Not once does Jesus say the world will know that you follow me if you get everything right. Jesus doesn't say that the world will know you live for me if you're perfectly obedient. Jesus doesn't say that the world will know you're sent on mission from me if you have all the right answers. (laughs) He says he'll know all those things if you do it together in the name of Jesus. I love what Warren Wiersbe, the Bible commentator, says. He says the New Testament knows nothing, absolutely nothing, of an isolated Christian. He says, wherever you find saints and followers of Jesus, you find fellowship. Why? Well, because God's people need each other. He says, there is every reason, every reason why believers should love each other and live in unity. He says, we trust the same Savior. We all share the same glory. And one day, guess what? We're all going to enjoy the same heaven. (laughs) He says, we belong to the same Father, We seek to do the same work. We want to witness together to a lost world that Jesus Christ alone saves us from sin. We have every reason to be together. And Jesus, in the last moments of his life on earth, cries out to God to make it happen. Well, that first priority I said, everything sits under that umbrella, right? Well, I think the last one is what every priority points to. I think it's kind of like a sandwich. (laughs) The first one is the umbrella that every two and three sit under. We we are daily being made and sanctified to look more like Jesus, so God will get the glory. We have unity in the church, so God will get the glory. But I think it sits on the foundation of Jesus' purpose. Jesus prays. For God to use his people to minister and share the gospel with a lost world. Why are we sanctified to be made to look like Jesus? So that we can bring people to Jesus. Why are we unified in the church? So that people will know Jesus. in verse 18, Jesus prays. He says, God, as you have sent me into the world, so I am sending them. In verse 24, he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me. They may come where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Jesus is talking about his resurrected life. In verse 25, he says, Righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. As I have made known to them your name, I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me is in them and I in them. Jesus is preparing to leave his earthly ministry. And he asks that God would pass on the legacy of faith that he has put in his disciples to other people. See, the purpose of our sanctification, the purpose of our unity is to win the world to Jesus. If you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, we are not sanctified. We don't, we don't get sanctified so everybody, everybody can be impressed with how great we look. We don't unify so everybody can go, boy, that church really has it together. We do those things and all those things matter because they are what point people to Jesus. Now, now don't get me wrong this morning. <laughs> we, we can't just assume that that looking like Jesus and unity will automatically win the world to Jesus, right? Like if we just get our life right and we all work together, I, I'm not promising that the doors will open and people will flood in and surrender to Jesus. We, we know that's not exactly how it works, but I do know this. I, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly certain of this, that we have seen throughout history that disunity in the church and Christians who say one thing and live another cripple our opportunity and ability to win the world for Jesus. I think oftentimes we wonder, like why don't we see conversion experiences like in the book of Acts here, uh, we had a guest speaker come into our s- a staff and board retreat at CSF, and they do ministry over in the Middle East, and she was telling this story about how they had won, literally won some guy that they were passing on a camel <laughs> to Jesus. And he came to Jesus, and he went back to his tribe, and they had won like this whole tribe of hundreds of people to Jesus. And literally, they were having trouble baptizing people in the Sahara Desert because they had run out of water. And I heard that and go, why, do, why don't we have that? Maybe you've thought that too, and then it dawned on me that I wonder, maybe the reason we don't see the fulfillment of Jesus' prayer where we're at as much as we see it other places. I mean, could it be as simple as maybe you and I are just sharing our faith a whole lot less than people did in the Bible or they do other places? Maybe we've gotten so focused on what's in here That we forgot about what's out there. I was at a roundtable discussion about the church and a group of ministers, and we were talking about this about how, for years, the only thing we ever measured in the church was butts and seats and bodies and baptistries. And that's a good thing to measure, it's important. And and we've grown out of that a little bit. We've also now started measuring, like, how many people are in small groups and how many people are serving in ministries in the church. And those are all really good things. And and somebody posed the question, how come we don't measure anything that happens outside the walls? (laughs) another person said, what do you mean by that? And the guy said this. He said, have we ever thought about measuring how many of our people are involved in community things? but they do it with a different purpose and perspective? Like he said, do you know how many people at your church coach Little League in your town, but they do it in a way that points people to Jesus? How many of your people are involved in like Kiwanis or any of those kind of clubs, but they do it in a way that points people to Jesus? How many of them teach in your school, but they do it in a way that points people? Like, and he went through all these things. How come we don't measure that and we don't celebrate that? He says, do we ever ask our people, how many non-Christian friends do you have that you're investing in? Because, how come we don't measure that? See, I think that's what Jesus was praying for. Now, don't get me wrong, he was praying for all the things inside the church, too. He's praying that we come together as a body of believers and are being made and discipled to look more like Jesus. But the reason we are discipled and made to look more like Jesus and to be unified in following Jesus is so that we can get other people to Jesus. As the band comes this morning, I was trying to think, how do you put a bow on what Jesus had prayed? I had a preaching professor in college that says, always said, you can give the best information in a sermon, but if your congregation leaves going, okay, but so what? Then you failed. And and like, I think it's super clear what the heart of Jesus is in this passage, right? That Jesus is praying, for you and me, his followers, to give God the glory to continue to grow and to look more like Jesus, to be unified in the church and to win the world but, but so what? What do we do with that? And I can't get this out of my head and this could be a really dumb illustration but I don't know I have kids too, some of you have kids and it got me thinking how often I pray for my children and that there are things that I pray for my kids. And honestly, a lot of my prayer sometimes is like, Jesus, could you just help them to get this now? Like, could you just help them to figure it out now instead of going through a life of years of pain and stupidity like I'd have? Like, Could could you just help them like flip the switch now and I meet with both my sons once a week and we're doing a, we go through the Bible together. We're reading through the book of James right now. And a couple weeks, about probably three weeks ago, we met and one of my sons had this moment. And I mean like a life-altering moment from scripture. And he, he grasped something that honestly, I've been praying for him to grasp for 10 years. And he even shares with me, he goes, he says, dad, I've been asking God, to, to show me, to help me understand this for the last six months. And all of a sudden, like through Scripture, the light bulb went off, and he figured this something out that I honestly thought might take him decades to get. And I got to tell you, as a dad, outside of them surrendering to Jesus, it was one of the most joyful moments of my life. Like I got home, and I was in tears about, just I couldn't, I was so thankful that God through his grace and mercy allowed him to grasp this now and he didn't have to wait 20 years. I can't describe to you the joy I felt. And I tell you that church this morning to simply say this and then we're done. Jesus in this prayer says that he is the manifested truth of God. He is God the Father revealed to us, right? And what that means is his prayer is the heart not only of Jesus, but that is the heart of God the Father for you and me. The heart of God the Father for his children, for you and me, is that we would live for Jesus, that we would love and speak and serve in a way that's different than the world, and that we would do that together so that other people might know him. That's his heart. He's crying out that we would get it. Church, I can't think of anything that would give God the Father more joy than if his sons and daughters would this morning go, oh, that's it. And that we would surrender to him. And we would give our life to him now instead of waiting for decades of pain and stupidity Church, as we sing this this morning, my prayer and my hope is that you and me would fulfill the prayer of our Father and that we would bring him joy this morning as we surrender to him. Let's sing.